it's not all on me. Like it really isn't. This is a collective movement of souls working toward a better world together over decades, maybe a hundred years. And I am just part of this energy moving the world to a better place for farmed animals. I am happy and I feel like I belong in this movement with others who care about this issue and have dedicated their lives. And that to me is a very important fuel for me, that connection and that community. I see the change. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant Based News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined again by a truly remarkable guest, animal rights activist, author, and the president of Mercy for Animals, Leah Garcez. Leah is a visionary leader and a passionate advocate with nearly 20 years of leadership experience in the animal protection movement, and she has achieved great strides with the movement in that time. She's currently based in Atlanta, Georgia, and Leah is half Colombian and half American. She also lived in Spain and, of course, the United States and even in the UK. She has an impressive career, which she spent seven years at the World Society for the Protection of Animals, where she oversaw international campaigns in 14 countries and managed a multi-million dollar budgets. This led her to launch the US chapter of Compassion in World Farming, where she spent eight years further amplifying her efforts to reduce the suffering of animals on a massive scale. Her remarkable career and advocacy led her to her current role as the first female and Latina president of Mercy for Animals, an international nonprofit dedicated to ending the exploitation of animals for food and constructing a compassionate food system. It's active in the United States, Mexico, Brazil, and India, and the organization has conducted more than 18 investigations of factory farms and slaughterhouses. It's moved more than 300 food companies to adopt animal welfare policies and has helped pass historic legislation to ban cages for farmed animals. Leah holds a Master of Science degree in Environment and Development from King's College London and has presented at global forums including TEDx, Rio Plus 10 and the World Health Organization Global Forum for Health Research. She is also the author of Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. Her work has garnered the attention of national and international media outlets including the New York Times, the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Vice and the Chicago Tribune. In 2022, she also was featured on Vox's The Future Perfect 50, a list of scientists, thinkers, scholars and writers and activists building a more perfect future. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Leah Garcez again for another episode on the Plant-Based News Podcast today for what is surely an insightful conversation about all things animal agriculture and how we can build a better future and a more compassionate food system. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It honestly really does help get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Leah. Great to sit down with you again and uh, talk more about the exciting work that you're doing. Uh, great to be here again, Robbie. Hi, my name is Leah Garces, and I am the first female president for Mercy for Animals. I live in Atlanta, and I live only about three or four miles from where Martin Luther King was born and where he was raised. And we have just a really rich civil rights history. It reminds you that there are fights to be fought and that you can't be complacent. And I'm really glad to be raising my kids here where they're, they're surrounded by examples of agents of change. Have to be careful with the chickens. The people have to be careful with the chickens? That's what she's saying? So I have three kids, uh, Reuben, Asher, and Andrea. They're all vegan and my husband is vegan. 
My primary reason for going vegan is because of the animals. I'm an ethical vegan, first and foremost. We had a previous episode with you and uh, you know, we talked about your vegan story. We talked about all the incredible work that led you to the point you are today. But tell us where things are today. You, know, you are the president of Mercy for Animals, an incredible organization. Give us a little update on the organization itself and your feeling about where we are in the movement today. I have been at Mercy for Animals now for five years, almost in October, and things are going so well. It's such an exciting time to be in the movement and be at an organization like Mercy for Animals. Probably the most exciting new thing that's happened at Mercy for Animals is we've expanded into Southeast Asia. We've set up a network of some amazing activists in Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines. And it's so important we're there. Something like 80% of farmed animals are in Asia at any one time in the whole world. And so this is something we wanted to do and finally have the resources and the knowledge and know-how. And we've connected with people on the ground other things we've been part of, uh, you know, being part of, of Prop 12 has been phenomenal here in the United States. Our Brazil office is doing incredible things like getting live exports banned in Brazil or uh, recently gestation crates banned, although there's a very long date on that. The movement in Brazil is exploding and our office is right there on the ground helping that happen. The work in Mexico is going really well as well as they try to navigate creating norms and legislation or regulations around cage-free and globally our work to eradicate, get rid of cages is also going well. It's a super exciting time. And you know, veganism is exploding. It's, it's used to be a word, nobody knew what it meant, but more and more it's just being embraced all over the world by many different generations. Um, and we're so fortunate to be an organization that can help, help guide that passion and interest around the world. These birds are sick, injured, and surrounded by manure. Never before seen footage reveals what life is like for chickens in a Mexican egg farm, owned by a company that claims its hens are happy and free. A brave Mercy for Animals investigator went undercover into the farm, documenting the roughly 200,000 hens trapped inside. The heartbreaking footage shows chickens cramped in tiny, filthy cages, unable to stretch their wings. Some birds get stuck in thick bits of feces and urine and slowly die. One hen frees herself from the sludge just to be beaten with a stick and carelessly thrown. The footage also shows chickens suffering from severe prolapses, their organs protruding from their bodies. Our investigator did not observe any birds receiving timely veterinary attention. Chickens are just as intelligent and sensitive as the dogs and cats we know and love. Stand up for all beings by choosing plant-based foods. Visit mercyforanimals.org slash pledge to get started. So the organization has been running for quite a few years now, um, and obviously it's a, it's a non-profit, it's a charity. What are some of the challenges that you face in maintaining the integrity of an organization, both financially and also with people? Because obviously, as you grow, you add more people. As you sort of take on new challenges, you have to build new teams. As you say, you're opening offices all over the world. It must be really challenging to keep people motivated and, of course, also keep people paid as well. You know, we're living in a very challenging economic environment. 
with funding being dropped left, right and centre, with businesses going under, with, you know, the cost of living crisis spiralling out of control over the world. Like, how are you doing and how are you able to keep everything moving forward? Oh, my gosh, you're getting me stressed out, Robbie. You're getting me stressed out just talking about it like that. Well, um, you know, it's not it's not easy. And I appreciate you recognizing that because I think, first of all, the work itself is not easy, you know. Getting rid of factory farming is not easy. And then maintaining an organization and payroll is not easy. And maintaining happy staff is not easy. I, I think of it as my job as CEO and president are like three legs on a stool. There's three parts to it. The first is like having impact for animals, having impact on our strategy, continue our mission and being able to do that. So having a strong strategy that sets clarity for everyone in the organization getting rid of the noise that's out there being like, this is our focus. You can't do everything. So here are the things we're going to do. And then seeing progress against those metrics feels good. And we've already, we've made the decision. These are the metrics we're going for. So you don't have to keep returning to what do I need to do? How do I need to do it? We just set that strategy and we go for it and we make little adjustments. So that kind of impact is, is leg one. Leg two is culture. And you know, the saying is culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it does. If you don't have happy staff who feel really involved and they feel uh, like they're thriving and they're challenged and they're, they're respected and they have a voice and they can be engaged, then you will not succeed in that impact part. And so we spent an equal amount of time, like I spent an equal amount of effort thinking about what makes people thrive at an organization? What helps them stay engaged and challenged and interested in their most creative, innovative, highest potential? And then the third part is money. And we have to have a strong finances and strong, a strong ability to raise money to do anything. So those all three work together. And to raise the money, you have to have really intelligent team members who know how to do that and are diversifying where we're getting our funding from to ensure we're not relying on one angle only. And we do that. We've been really working since I got here to diversify where our funding's coming from. Everything from our sustainers who are our monthly givers, who are a growing, really important sector in our funding strategy to you know the one-offs to the major donors who are giving the most amount of money. And about 50% of our money comes from like 40 people, honestly, which is you know, a really big amount, but also very scary because if you lose one of those people for whatever reason, because they're having a financial problem, they've had a bad year, cryptocurrency, blah, 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 like that's scary. So we try to diversify the funding. We try to save. We have savings so that on we don't feel a panic if things go wrong one year. We have a backup plan. We have reserves. So it's those three legs on the stool that sustain an organization throughout time. And we're in next year will be our 25th anniversary. We're doing pretty good, you know? Still, yeah, still going. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, we PBN's only been running for seven years and we've really sort of battled and struggled, you know, to keep people motivated, to make sure the money keeps coming in. We're a mission-led organization, but we are a, you know, a private limited company. So we do operate in a sort of profit-like way but we are mission-led and it's a real challenge between balancing out, bringing money into the organization and also maintaining the integrity of our mission, which is to essentially you know, advocate and educate as many people as possible uh, and teach them about the damaging effect of factory farming, of animal agriculture generally. And there is a real tension between the financial brain of the organization and also the one that has the mission, because the mission is unlimited. The, you, could, you could pour unlimited amounts of money into an organization with teams and 
ideas and campaigns, it's not always about profit. It's about um, effectiveness and, and impact. And, you know, that probably leads me on to my next question, which is about impact. Obviously, most of animals, as you say, have been running for 25 years. How do you as a team and as an organization measure the impact of all this work that you're doing? Because obviously, you're a huge team expanding globally. How do you know whether you're heading in the right direction? How do you know that things are evolving in, with, in alignment with your mission? Yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about this. And with nearly 200 people in our organization, we have to be really systematic about it, honestly. What we did, we, we set out a three-year, we do three-year strategic plans. Um, and so 2024 will be the third of the three years. So we're, in our, we're about halfway through. And within that strategic plan, there are top key performance indicators under those are more indicators and more indicators, drawing down from organizational level to department level to an individual level. And then those individuals are responsible for tracking. Are they moving along those metrics? And those metrics add up to the department that add up to the organizational metrics back up to those KPIs. So every quarter, I'm reviewing those key performance indicators. We have about 19 global key performance indicators that we think are like the best way a kind of litmus test are we on track so we we probably have over 200 total indicators or metrics we're following but of those 19 are the ones we're like okay are we having impact on animals and those 19 are the ones i'm reviewing and the team and the board are reviewing and asking are we on track and why not and if they're all green if we're all doing well we probably we're failing because we didn't try hard enough like some of them should be failures some of them should be in the yellow or the red so we follow those pretty, you know, systematically. We look at those regularly. We review those regularly. We've created systems where we can review those and ensure, are we on track? Because otherwise it becomes very confusing and very difficult to understand in a, in a system as big as 200 people in multiple countries, are we having impact and how do you know? And so we set those, we make that decision at the beginning of the three years, and then we track along that. We review, we have both qualitative and quantitative reviews of that strategy and that tracking. Don't mistake me for a quiet one. That's just me getting ready my big guns. Don't you know I can kick walls down? for a campaign, how do you decide where to put your energy? Because obviously animal agriculture is vast. There's so many different industries. There's so many different layers of, I guess, cruelty and environmental destruction. There's so much going on. You can't do everything. How do you as a team decide where to put your energy and, and, and obviously apportion your resources? 
Yeah. Well, Mercy for Animals has made a very specific decision and that's what a strategy is, right? It's like making a specific decision on how you're going to have, what intervention you're going to have. Our intervention, our key intervention is through institutions, big institutions, and two of them in particular, corporate and government. And so we really focus on corporate interventions and government interventions because from Mercy for Animals perspective, we feel that's where you can have the biggest bang for your buck. You can affect the most animals. There's two ways we use those institutions to impact animals. And they are either reducing the suffering of farmed animals or they're taking animals off the plate. So that looks like sparing. So the taking animals off the plate is go vegan, like add plant-based options to a government's spending or get a plant-based option onto a restaurant's menu. The reducing suffering looks like Prop 12, like getting rid of cages and crates. And in a corporation, that'll look like getting McDonald's to go cage-free. And so those are our key interventions. To do all of that, we need people power. We need undercover investigations. We need PR strategies to be able to put pressure on those institutions to then take animals off the plate and reduce their suffering. Because our overall objective is to impact animals and make their lives better. Our transformation team worked with a family of farmers in Iowa who after 30 years terminated their contract with a major meat company to raise pigs and began converting their barns for growing mushrooms. This monumental change will spare 8,000 pigs annually and marks the first time Mercy for Animals has worked with animal farmers to shut down their factory farm to pursue raising plants. We worked with Senator Cory Booker and the ASPCA to introduce federal legislation to hold the meat industry accountable for the crisis it has created. The Industrial Agriculture Accountability Act would add animal protections to the 2023 Farm Bill by addressing some of the cruelest practices. And around the world, Mercy for Animals keeps achieving massive wins for animals desperately in need of our help. In Mexico, after conversations with Mercy for Animals and Animal Equality, Rio Hotels and Resorts, a Spanish hotel chain with nearly 100 locations, committed to sourcing only cage-free eggs for its global operations by 2025. We're bringing delicious plant-based meals to the masses through our Alimentación Consciente Brazil program. We collaborated with Humane Society International in three major cities in Brazil to replace more than 12.5 million animal-based meals per year with plant-based meals. After outreach from Mercy for Animals in a partner group, the capital territory of Delhi, India, issued a territory-wide ban on extreme confinement of pregnant and mother pigs. Five other states in India soon followed in Delhi's footsteps. One of the points that come up a lot, and it's something that we discussed when we met at that conference in London, I think it was at the Extinction Conference, I think it was called. Oh, it was a while ago. Yeah, the first time. Yeah, quite a few, a few years ago. And you, I remember you said to me, sometimes you have to sit down at the table of, I don't know whether you use the word enemy or the other side or something like that, you know, and you alluded to the idea that sometimes we have to sit down across the table from people that we don't necessarily like or agree with to be able to come to some kind of compromise really because at the end of the day we're not going to remove animal agriculture instantly it's going to be a slow and challenging process painful process for many obviously especially the animals but there are a lot of people in the movement who say things like a bigger cage is still a cage or you know a, a shed is still a, a shed animals are still being killed and a lot of people feel very i guess when they first go vegan and, and switch to this lifestyle very frustrated about the speed in which change is happening how do we help inspire people to understand that change takes time? How do we give people the tools to to work in this way? Because I think there's a lot of people within the movement who want to 
go straight for the jugular, where they might be sitting on street corners or practicing outside farms, screaming meat is murder at people, trying to sort of shake people out of these lifestyles or these industries or, or even use aggressive tactics. I personally believe it doesn't work, but how do we explain it to people that this way of doing things, it might be a longer road, but it is potentially a more efficient and more effective way of bringing change? You know, I think that my, you know, Mercy for Animals in my perspective is similar to yours. Every year there are more animals killed in the system than ever before. That's the reality. That's the world we live in. And that's because more people are coming out of poverty. Um, there's a rising middle class around the world and there's just more human beings. So there's more human beings and they aren't as poor, malnourished, et cetera. So they're eating more animals. So that's, that seems to keep growing. So even if we're individually getting people to eat less meat, there's just more of us on the planet eating meat. And so that's the reality. That is the pragmatic reality we have to face. And so the example that I like to use is if you were on death row in a terrible, horrible prison, would you want someone just advocating, advocating for you to just get rid of the death penalty? Or would you also want them to be improving the conditions you're stuck in until the death penalty is, is eliminated? And I think you would want both. And I think the animals want both. And I'd really try to think about the animals. And I think there's not a right way. And I think the people on the street corner who want to be angry, then that's okay. I think if that's where your energy is, and I don't think it does damage. I don't think it does necessarily moves things forward. I don't have, that's not my energy. I, that's not what I feel like matches what I think is right in the world. But I don't also want to condemn that because I think you have to show up authentically with how you feel about this issue. For me, I think that I have a moral obligation. I feel a moral obligation to the animals that are stuck in the system for the foreseeable future. I've been to so many factory farms and I think about what a little bit more space or being out of a cage would feel like for a chicken versus being in the cage. Of course, not like being in a sanctuary or being someone's companion will be way better, but there are 9 billion of them just in the United States. So that's unrealistic. And so what can we do? And we can do it. Like it's the biggest area of success is getting rid of cages. If we look at everything, every intervention we've tried as a movement, the area where we are succeeding is getting rid of cages. And that means something to an individual animal. It means a better life, less suffering. And that I think is an obligation morally that we pursue that at the same time as pursuing a world where everyone sees the chicken as a companion animal. In this shed, Tens of thousands of chickens are raised for food every two months. Crammed together, these birds can hardly move without bumping into one another. They spend day after day of their short 40-day lives here, growing larger and larger and sitting on the feces-covered litter lining the floor. Take this chicken, whose skin injuries are likely a result of sitting on this litter all day. The filthy litter, common in the broiler industry, usually contains high amounts of ammonia, a corrosive chemical that can cause painful lesions on the belly and legs of these animals, making it uncomfortable to both stand and sit. The breeds of chicken most commonly used by the meat industry grow very heavy in a matter of weeks. 
chicks in their first weeks of life, who still chirp, already have the fully grown bodies of adults. Because of this unnaturally rapid growth, many of these birds have weak legs or skeletal abnormalities, on top of metabolic diseases such as heart failure. It's a dual-pronged attack, isn't it, where we're trying different strategies really for the same goal. I'm very conscious that a lot of people, again, say, well, the animal's still going to die, even if the cage is bigger, they're still going to die. But your point is, is that we aren't able to intervene at that point when the animal is being slaughtered. We are able to intervene before where the animal lives in a, in, in a certain environment where we can create change. And that's where we can work now. And whilst we're working there, we're also working to end factory farming and working to dismantle this destructive, damaging industry. What I find frustrating is that the science and the data is there. We know that animal agriculture is having such a damaging effect on the planet. We see it. What I can't understand is why politicians can't see it. You know, why are they so blind to the damage that farms are doing to rivers, to forests, to the oceans? It's there happening in plain sight, but that policy and, and lobbyists and governments seem to be looking the other way. Are they so short-sighted? Is it just all about you know, short-term profit? I just, I just can't understand them. You've worked with these people, talked to a lot of politicians, I imagine. What is going on there? Like, why, why does there seem to be such a, just a, a lack of, a, of, what's the word, political will to make some serious and major changes in our, in our countries? Well, I can speak from the United States perspective, for sure. And I can tell you why they're not paying any attention. It's because their pockets are lined with industry money. So political campaigns are being funded by mega meat companies. And they are, there's a revolving door between our, the United States government and big meat, big dairy, big egg. I mean, Tom Vilsack, who is the head of the Secretary of Agriculture here in the United States, do you know what he did before being the Secretary of Agriculture in the United States? He was a dairy lobbyist. He worked for the dairy industry and he's a dairy lobbyist. And guess what? When Prop 12 came up, the Biden administration sided with the pork industry. And this is consistent that our politicians owe something to the meat industry because they help them get elected. This is what we see happening in the United States. There are a few wonderful, brave, courageous individuals who are bucking that trend. And those are people like Cory Booker. And Cory Booker is doing a wonderful job saying this is not okay for not just the animal side, but because of how it affects people of color, how it's an injustice in our food system, for people working in slaughterhouses, for using incarcerated people in, in the slaughterhouses, for the impact or in the, and the use of our federal dollar in such an inefficient and corrupt way, and how it's not feeding us. It's not a good way to feed us. And he's doing a lot to do that. And I think what I try to remember when I think of governments is it takes a really long time with governments. Corporations happens faster because they have to answer to a shareholder really quickly. They have to answer every quarter to a shareholder. Governments don't have to answer for two, four, six years. And so they take longer. Yeah, it takes longer. And I have an example, which I think gives me a lot of insight into how long this might take, which is in terms of women's suffrage, women's right to vote in the, 19, in the United States, the 19th Amendment. It was introduced 42 times in Congress before it passed. 42 times, just the right to vote for women, before it was finally agreed in 1919 and then finally affirmed by all the states, almost all the states by 1920. But what I think of is each time it was introduced, a conversation was happening in the halls of Congress. And each time that was elevating the issue. And so... Sometimes when we think of government 
actions, we just think of the one win. It's like all or nothing, zero or 100%. But actually, there's a lot of steps and conversations and mindset change that happens. Every time it introduces and it fails, a conversation has been had, a few people's minds have been changed, it's been elevated in the media, and then we keep going back. And we're going to have to do that when we talk about governments. We're going to have to also build political power for, for farmed animals and being anti-factory farming. That's something globally we need to do. This needs to be an issue that is important to the political agenda of everyone being elected in a way that overpowers the money that's lining the politicians' pockets right now. Fascinating. I think it's exactly the same here in the UK, I think. It's a smaller country, but same playbook. I think one of the biggest things that I find infuriating about government is that they're in, in power for very short terms. So they're only thinking about that short term in which they're in power. And often they're really thinking about the next election. They're not really thinking long term. They're not thinking 10, 20, 30, 50 years. I personally believe we need a total overhaul of our political system, but it can't be done now because the people in control are the ones holding the guns at the door, not allowing anyone in to change the system. So we need a revolution of some sort. Some might say we need more vegans in politics. I think we do. Um, I think we know people who, environmentalists, people who care about the planet and the earth and not just about short-term profit. You know, I really question some of these politicians. Do they not have children? Do they not have families? Do they not care about the future? of this world. It's such a delicate, beautiful place. And, you know, what's going on in New York, you know, if you're listening to this in the future, right now in New York, due to the forest fires that are ravaging uh, Canada, New York City is completely engulfed in a thick smog uh, of uh, of smoke from, from these forest fires, which is happening in part due to the climate crisis, which has obviously happened in part because of the effects of animal agriculture. So we're now seeing the very real effects. Well, the Western world is now starting to see the very real effects of the climate crisis, which I'm hoping when more of these types of events happen, maybe more people will wake up and they will start to realize. But for people to realize, they need to be able to connect the dots, don't they? And if they're not connecting the dots because their eyes are blinded by the big dollar signs, then yeah. we've got our work, our work cut out for us. Yeah, I think the dollar sign does blind a lot, unfortunately. I believe our mindset can change. I hope it isn't because some really big disaster happens. I hope like a big heat wave in a country that kills tens of millions of people, which that is possible. I feel hopeful that we are capable as a species of turning this around. And I am so grateful for everyone around the world who keeps going to these UN summits and in their governments and speaking about animal agriculture is a massive contributor that is underestimated and is not paid attention to in the way that it should be. But I think we just got to keep doing that. We got to keep showing up in the same way, like women's suffrage introduced it 42 times over you know years and years, decades. We have to do that too. And eventually eventually it will be heard. One of the sort of often forgotten parts of the vegan conversation when we talk about animal agriculture is the, um, the human cost of animal agriculture. Social justice, obviously, is a topic that resonates with you. And you're also the first female, can I say Latina? Is that the right? Latina, that's, I'm all about the Latina, yeah. Yes, the first female Latina president of Mercy for Animals. So I'd love to hear your view on the intersection between social justice and animal rights, because obviously, you know, human beings work within the animal uh, agricultural industry and they are affected deeply. What is going on in that, just as a bit of a recap for those that may not know? So in the United States and really around the world, the people who work in slaughterhouses are usually a very vulnerable population. And in the United States, they're mostly immigrants from South and Central America, either with authorization or not with authorization to work here. 
But either way, they are very, they have very low political, social, and economic power, meaning they are working in terrible conditions without a voice to change the situation. I had the opportunity to, I'm, I'm writing a book, um, I've written a book, and one of the chapters is about uh, Latina slaughterhouse workers in a Smithfield slaughterhouse in Iowa. And I spent some time with the community. Um, they're mostly from El Salvador and other Central American countries in Mexico. Their lives are horrific. They've left places of violence of war, of extreme poverty, and they've come to the United States hoping for something better. And when they come here, they end up in a slaughterhouse because they know family there. They're offered a job. One woman in particular really makes me, I think about her regularly. She came from El Salvador. She crossed the border without authorization, smuggled here by a horrible coyote, um, was assaulted along the way, pregnant, came here and found herself in the the cleaning shift of the slaughter plant. And the cleaning shift happens between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. at night. And it is the part of the, the, the slaughterhouse cycle where you're cleaning the equipment of all of the bone and the blood and the shards and the pieces. Lots of chemicals, hot water, lots of pressure. And she found herself in extreme pain all the time, holding a hose, um, breathing the chemicals, she also found herself, you know, harassed and abused in this situation and with the inability to speak out at all. Because if she did, she risked being reported, she risked being deported. And this was a place she was stuck in. This is who is producing our meat. Uh, and this is also the, the cleaning station, the lavada, is the, the place where we've seen recently in the United States where children are being used. There have been over 100 children that have been found in eight major companies that from the ages of 13 to 17, working these night shifts, doing this horrific, dangerous work with chemical burns and all kinds of injuries and problems. And this is how our meat is produced. And it's an, it always relies on an, a concept of disposability of whoever is in the, either the farm or in the slaughterhouse. So either the animals are completely disposable, like if we lose a few hundred, who cares? That's how the system thinks. And also with these workers, they can't speak up, they're disposable, we'll have a new batch in, they're just numbers and widgets in a machine. And so I think these, these, op, these oppressions are very interlinked, that the whole system relies on oppressing and also just externalizing all harm and risk to others and the companies at the top maximizing profit and efficiency at the expense of everyone else. And so I think at the heart of how to get rid of factory farming, we have to look at these connections. We have to look at these oppressions that are interlinked. It's a very damning indictment of animal agriculture, and I wish more people knew about it. And do you think that there's a place, Leah, for more campaigns where we can show the faces or show the show the humanity, the lack of humanity, perhaps behind animal agriculture. Because I personally haven't seen in my time, I've only been involved in the movement for 10, 11 years, but I've never seen campaigns, national, international campaigns that talk about individuals, specifically children that are you know, used and abused in these systems. Do you, do you feel like some kind of campaign that showed the human cost might have a powerful impact on people's decision to continue eating meat? Mercy for Animals really wants to try to tell those stories. It's very challenging because people feel like they can't speak up. So I've written a book and I've interviewed people, but I've had to change their names. So I have about a dozen people that I interviewed and four are heavily featured in my book. 
but I've changed their names. So in a book, you don't get to see anyone but a video. We would really like to go back and figure out ways to raise the stories and voices of these oppressed people in a way that doesn't put them in danger. Uh, and there are groups, human rights groups that are working, immigration rights groups that I know and that I work with. There's a group called um, Justice in Motion, who I connect with, that looks at these, these issues. There's a huge issue around the world with uh, refugees and immigrants being abused in their country that they come into, being oppressed in the country they come into. And slaughterhouses is one of those places they land in around the world. So, you know, whether you're in Thailand or you're in Texas, you are finding that immigrants are used in this way. So it's a challenge globally, but I think it speaks to the bigger idea that factory farming uses anybody who's vulnerable. It just go, it just, just is like a magnet to the vulnerable, whether it be the animals or people. And so the greater thing is we have to get rid of factory farming because factory farming will always, even if we solve immigration and we they'll find somebody else that's vulnerable. And that's, we see them also moving to refugees, for example, who can't find another job. The root of the problem is it's a system of oppression all around. I'd love to hear more about your book. Are you allowed to tell us? Because it's you've just finished writing it, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just submitted my first draft manuscript last Friday. So it's like very fresh and probably will change a little bit after the publisher gets back to me. But it's called Transformation. And it is about the fight for food and freedom and our future. It's basically the impact of factory farming told from those closest to it. And so it's broken into three parts. The first is farmers. So farmers who are in factory farming, who want to get out, and they're part of our transformation project, and they're transitioning to hemp, to mushrooms, to microgreens, and other products. And it's a really not pitching everyone as victims, but as heroes of their own story who are finding a way out and telling why they want to get out and how they're getting out. Because a lot of times we when we talk about transitions of systems, we talk about what's really bad and the problems and we talk about the solutions, but we don't look at that like gulf in the middle and how to get there. And this is really looking at that gulf. The second part is about animals who have found their way out of factory farming. So I have a pig truck jumper who finds, you know, tr jumps off of a Smithfield truck. I have a chicken who I rescued from factory farm ends up being part of my family and a dairy cow, Norma, who fights a worker from taking away her baby and ends up in a sanctuary in Vermont. And then the last section is about communities who are fighting their way out. And so it's three kind of communities covered, refugees, slaughterhouse workers, and then people of color living around hog farms who are impacted by the pollution. And the last is really a policy. It's really a policy book. It's, it's a book about the kind of policy we need in government and where we failed, and, but practical and pragmatic solutions that we need to attract and adopt to find our way out of factory farming. And so it does lean, it looks at the farm bill. It looks at things that Cory Booker is doing, banning cages and crates and all these kinds of practical solutions, slowing down line speeds, both pragmatic and realistic ones, but also dreamy ones that I hope we get to one day. Amazing. Um, it's obviously named after the Mercy for Animals Farmation Project, which I think is yeah. a genius name for, for, for a campaign or for, for a project like that. We've all heard of the struggling family farm and the suffering of farmed animals. But what if we could solve both of these problems at the same time? A chicken farm could become a hemp farm and a hog farm a lettuce farm. 
with Mercy for Animals' revolutionary new Transformation Project. This is becoming a reality. Check out the transformationproject.org to learn more and get involved. Where are we at today? How it's been running for a while. Like, give us a little bit of an update on on the project itself and some of the sort of successes and some of the challenges you've been facing. Yeah, we launched the Transformation Project at the end of 2019. And when we launched it, it was like a website. It was like, this is our dream. We really want to attract farmers that want to transition. Who's in? And we were shocked. We got like 200 farmers who wrote to us and said, I'm curious, how do you do this? I hate factory farming. So it really leaned into that suspicion we had that nobody does this because they want to. It's some kind of need that they're meeting, right? Like living in a rural area. We took some of those 200 and we started piloting with them everywhere from Texas to North Carolina to Iowa uh, and Georgia even. And uh, we've got a bunch of farmers now who are somewhere in the process of transitioning out of factory farming. We've done these deep studies looking at which crops are have the biggest profit margin in converting a poultry house or a hog house. The ones that we found that came up on top is uh, specialty mushrooms are the top. They're the top profit uh, dry, like profit margin for a farmer who are, who's converting a poultry house or a pig house. The second is microgreens. And then somewhere a little bit below are cucumbers and tomatoes and strawberries. And actually the thing that ended up not doing so well was hemp. We have one farmer who did transition to hemp and doing oil, like CBD oil, but they are also doing changing some of their uh, their old poultry houses into dog rescue kennels where they're taking in stray dogs and they're getting them healthy and then rehoming them, which is really beautiful too. And so on top of that, we're, we're creating two hubs, we're calling them transformation hubs, one in Iowa and one in North Carolina. And these are going to be places where people can come and learn, where we can bring politicians, where we can bring corporations, where we can bring activists, we can bring other farmers to come together in the community to see, come and like get on the ground, see what's going on, learn and then go out and do it in their place. One of the key ideas of trans the transformation project is everything's open source. So anyone who signs up to work with us has to be willing to share the results, the blueprints, the like finances of how it's gonna work. The opposite of like the kind of protective way, it's instead creating a network and community of learning to help anyone and everyone who wants to transition. Wow, that sounds amazing. I, I, we've got some similar projects in the UK, but quite small at the moment. The biggest problem is funding and support because obviously making these transitions and changing farms over to plant-based farming systems is is quite costly. And but I think you know you've, you've got to have the will there first. You've got to inspire people. A lot of farmers we speak to uh, that are, that kind of get in touch with plant-based news might be farming sheep on the hills of Wales, and they can't in their mind see how they could do anything else because they've been doing it for generations. So it can be a real mindset. And, you know, sort of talking of generations, how much is how much work is going on about, um, and I'm going to say targeting children because that sounds really insidious, but <laughs> how, do we, how, do we, how do we inspire younger generations to think about their future? Because I know, like, with our metrics and looking at, at people who are engaging with PBN, most of our audience are quite young and they seem more aware about the effect of food on the planet, on the environment, just on the general well-being of, of everyone who lives here. What is actually happening? I mean, is this Mercy for Animals involved in any sort of uh, youth outreach or universities or colleges or schools? What kind of organizations are you aware of are doing this work? Because obviously there's a, there is a big gap there, I think, in how young people are being 
taught about the effects their food is having on the planet because you might go into a, a canteen in in most of across across most of america and most of it will be meat and eggs and dairy and cheese and all these different things so are kids aware and and how do we help educate them because we really want to start with the, with the young'uns first don't we yeah yeah well i think first of all there's some great groups that are doing this work that are doing in school talks and providing resources for students from middle school to high school ages, which is a really good age to get in with kids. And it just really resonates with them. They really care about it. They really they really get it. So there's uh, groups like Ethical Choices or Farm, uh, Monica Chen and Lorena Monk are doing this work and they're doing good, good work, um, good work in getting into schools and not just giving the information, but giving tools to the to the kids. And this is really important. I think the next generation will shape the future. Uh, and I think they care less about having things and growing their finances and having big houses and big cars. I mean, the generation now I have, you know, teenagers, they don't care about driving. Like they don't want to have a car and they don't think about owning a house. And they have a really different mindset about the limited resources on the planet and our our personal agency in interacting with the resources on the planet. Uh, Mercy for Animals is going to launch a project next year, which I am super excited about, based on the the chicken that I rescued from a factory farm um, when I was working on a transformation project. Her name was Henrietta. Uh, we are creating a children's book called Henrietta Finds a Nest. And there is also going to be an animation that goes with it. The animation will be more aimed at like a middle and high school age. And the book will be aimed more at um, a younger age, like six to eight years old. And then there will be tools that go with it. And we are going to create a Henrietta Hatch Club, which will be a way to get kids engaged. And this will be our first time really working with kids and thinking about how to engage them uh, in a way that's meaningful. Really for me, I see the opportunity with kids as well, not just to talk about the negative sides of factory farming, but the joy of an animal being free. And that's what the book and the project is trying to focus on. When you look at other social justice movements like gay marriage, for example, the turning point for people's mindset was when the movement started to talk about freedom rather than rights and get people to think about freedom rather than this is a right, it has to be a right. And we're trying to do that with this project, get people to imagine what freedom looks like for a chicken, feels like for a chicken, and feels like for a human to experience a chicken being free and create that like desire, that imagination, that vision in a young age so that this is their mindset of what it should be like. And that's what the project hopefully will elicit out of the younger generation. I love that. As soon as that's launched, please let us know so we can can shout about it on PBN. I'm sure our audience will be uh, very pleased to to share. Very delightful. We did a we did a dodo, which I could share with you. We did a dodo project on Henrietta and my daughter's relationship because it was kind of insane. They like loved. It was during COVID, and they loved each other. My daughter like taught her how to ride the Roomba and a skateboard, and like. They did virtual school together and like everybody knew who Henrietta was because she joined the classroom and nobody would pay attention and super sweet. I think so many people were so in love and they didn't know they could love a chicken. Like you love a cat video and Henrietta was so endearing. And I think that's the kind of beauty we want to elicit in, in the way people think about farmed animals. 
I think when sort of people have grown up in cities and their only interaction with farmed animals has been an animal in pieces in a supermarket in a sanitized, homogenized, uh, you know, piece of polystyrene, when they go to a sanctuary or they interact or they absorb a piece of content from something like the dodo, I have had many stories of people who whose minds and mindset have completely transformed. You know, that realization has, has completely shifted. So it's really beautiful to hear. Um, I guess one of my final questions really is, and something I get asked all the time is, how can I get involved? I want to be part of Mercy for Animals. I want to be part of animal equality. I want to be part of plant-based news. What are some of the sort of skills that organizations like Mercy for Animals needs to be to be more efficient, to be more productive? Like what are the things that people who might be listening who want to be involved in this move, movement, like what should they be training in? Like where where should where should we be polishing and sharpening our skills if we want to be part of something that is is um, building effectiveness? Anything. All you like, I think you, we, we have finance people, HR people, like web designers, creative folks, like communication specialists. And then we have our strategists, our corporate engagement people, our campaigners, like literally all of it, right? The, the key thing that you need is a belief and passion for this issue. And that is something you can't train yourself to do. Like that is not something you go to school for. If you believe in your heart, this is something that feels like you belong, this is your home, then whatever skill you have, you can bring to an organization, whatever it is. Um, we need all kinds of people to fuel this movement. An organization, you know, it needs people who can run payroll, who can balance the checkbook, who can transfer money to Brazil when we need it, and who can pay our like, you know, tax, figure out our taxes, deal with a lawsuit. We need everybody. We need so many different people to make this big machine like really be effective. And so whatever you have, we can use. But what you must have is a passion and a, and, and a belief that we can win. And that's what I, when I interview people, it's like, I ask this question about optimism. You know, I really need people who have optimism and grit, who won't give up and believe with all their heart that we can win. Mercy for Animals opens eyes and hearts to the suffering farmed animals endure and the benefits of adopting a plant-based diet. With 30 active volunteer communities, 96 million social media impressions, and 12.7 million video views, we continue to build an unstoppable global force for compassion. And not one bit of this incredible progress would be possible without you. Together, we work wonders, and 2022 is proof. I can't wait to see what we do together next. Uh, my next question was going to be, well, there's a lot of people feeling very hopeless at the moment. How do we shift that? Uh, and myself included, I, I, there are, I'm, you know, to be really honest, everything that's been happening, and I'm obviously deeply involved in media, I do see a lot of very t terrible things, not just with animals, but with the environment and the planet itself, I do struggle personally to remain positive and optimistic. Yeah, every single day. So what do you know, <laughs> other than being optimistic, like what are the ways in which you keep yourself laser focused on that optimism? How do you, how do you sustain and foster that optimism? Well, uh, I do take a lot of time for self care. I've, you know, I've been working, I'm 45. I've been working on this since I was 21, I got a master's degree and then just didn't stop. So long time over, you know, 20 years. When I first started, I had this like mad energy, like I could just work and work and work. And, you know, over time, and it's probably an age thing too, I've just sort of settled into a steady pace and just realizing 
it's not all on me, first of all. And I'm the, I'm the CEO of Mercy Grounds. It's not all on me. Like, it really isn't. This is a collective movement of souls working toward a better world together over decades, maybe 100 years. And I'm just part of this energy moving the world to a better place for farmed animals. And I'm okay with that. Like, I have to settle with this idea that I don't have to fix everything individually. And this is a collective effort. And I am happy and I feel like I belong in this movement with others who care about this issue and have dedicated their lives. And that to me is a very important fuel for me, that connection and that community. I also, because I've been working for 25 years, I see the change. There has been tremendous change. I mean, the European Union is about to ban all cages and crates. And and maybe that doesn't feel like enough for a lot of people, but it's a big deal. It's millions and millions of animals are going to be better off because of it. And that's only happened because of us. That would not have happened if it weren't for activists. If it weren't for activists, those animals will still be in cages. We made their lives better. Along with that, the movement is global now. You know, in Brazil, we've they've, they've worked on banning live exports. They've worked on banning gestation crates. And we have activists all over the world. We have conferences just on farm animals. That didn't happen when I first started. There's a collection of people and it is growing and growing and growing. And we're having conversations about factory farming and its impact on the planet. We just weren't doing that. And there's so, I mean, veganism wasn't a word. There weren't plant-based options everywhere you went. There are now. And I have to be reminded by other people about that where they go, what do you mean you're winning? Like everybody can eat vegan all the time now, anywhere you go. And I have to remind myself, like, I'm not eating like textured vegetable protein anymore. Like, (laughs) you you know what I mean? Like those little dog food things you had to add water to, like, Life is better. It's genuinely better. It's getting better. And it's because of us. And it's if we are optimists, we are not complacent optimists. We are activists and we are actively working and working and working. And sometimes it is just like planting seeds that the tree will bloom after we're dead. And that's okay. I'm you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with not seeing it to its end, possibly, but that you genuinely are moving the arc in the right direction. There's some really good advice there, Leah Gosses. Thank you so much for your time here with me on the PVM podcast. Thank you for your optimism, your dedication, your devotion, and your incredible commitment to saving the lives of animals. Uh, again, te- teary even thinking about it. Um, yeah, wonderful work. And, you know, Thank you, you, Robbie. you get the word out and you inspire people all over the world. Your work is wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more veganism, food, fashion, animals, and everything in between.